hi, this is Glenn Rawson. One of the most powerful ways to share history and heritage is by the telling of stories. We began sharing inspiring stories nearly 30 years ago. Each of those stories is true and was intended to inspire and strengthen faith. Over the years, those stories have reached millions around the world. This podcast is for you to listen, learn, and enjoy. It is seductive, addictive, and dangerous. And it is for this reason that the framers of the American Constitution divided power, balanced that power, and checked it in the different branches of the American government. They well knew that men were not angels and that a lust for power unchecked would convulse the entire nation. Perhaps we have learned, after all, that that is indeed true. That power, as they said it, is safest with those who most understand it and least want it. The year was 1792. The race for the governorship of New York was the most violent and bitter the state had ever witnessed. Henry Clinton had been governor of New York as long as there had even been a governorship over New York, and as the election approached, it was considered that only one man could defeat the deeply entrenched Clinton. That man was John Jay, one of the co-authors of the Federalist Papers. It was he who had been George Washington's choice for the first Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. Jay was a popular man, but he was a reluctant candidate. He was not a politician, and it was not his habit of seeking public office. It was rather his governing philosophy that the office should seek the man, not the man the office. End of quote. Nevertheless, Jay was persuaded and he agreed to be put forth as a candidate, but he maintained that he would do nothing to further his own election. The campaign waged by his supporters on both sides was vicious and slanderous, to say the least. Only once during the campaign did John Jay speak, and then only to, quote, curb the vehemence of his own supporters, end of quote. Jay remained silent and dignified throughout the campaign, not rising to his own defense, not wishing to discuss it even with his wife. The election was held April 24, 1792. The results were slow to trickle in. By May 2nd, Jay's supporters who were watching had little or no doubt that the election was theirs. But the Clinton supporters were not to be defeated so easily. They found a legal loophole, a technicality. In Otsego County, New York, Jay held a comfortable majority. Now, according to the laws, the county's ballots were to be transmitted to the Secretary of State by the county sheriff. However, the term of the old sheriff had expired and a new sheriff had not yet qualified for the office. The ballots were therefore given to a special deputy to be delivered. 
The ballots were sealed, they were legal, and they were legitimate. And if they were accepted, the incumbent governor, Henry Clinton, would be ousted and John Jay would be the next governor of New York. Clinton and his supporters pounced on that technicality and argued that the Otsego ballots and those of other counties that Jay had won could not be accepted because they were not properly delivered. Clinton's supporters rousted an army of lawyers seeking every justification and argument that could be contrived to support the action. The election officials charged with ruling on the matter were partial to Governor Clinton. On the basis of that contrived technicality, they ruled the ballots void and unacceptable and then burned them. Governor Clinton won the election by a margin of 108 votes. The supporters of John Jay, as you can imagine, were incensed by the injustice and vowed to fight. The disenfranchised citizens of the wronged counties were especially angry at what they considered enslaving tyranny, and they vowed to seek every legal redress at their means. The talk even turned to threats of serious violence. In short, all of New York was in a state of angry commotion. And through it all, what of the patriot, John Jay, who had so nobly lauded the principles of the Constitution and helped bring about the ratification of that sacred document in New York? When John Jay came, to New York City. He was met by an immense, I'm quoting, an immense concourse of citizens who escorted him into town. Cheering groups lined the roads. A federal salute was fired on his behalf. Jay stood to speak amid the cheers of his supporters, but their prolonged and thunderous applause drowned out his voice. Now consider that moment. If John Jay had given the word, his supporters likely would have fought to the courts and perhaps even to the death in his defense. So determined were they that he be their governor, and all of it now sits in the hands of John Jay. So what did John Jay say? in that speech, with that much power and popularity at stake. What did he do? John Jay turned to that crowd and told them, quote, No political differences should suspend or interrupt that mutual good humor and benevolence that harmonizes society. In short, he urged all who would listen not to act illegally and not to sacrifice the good of all, the peace of society, the civil quiet for the gain of power. Because of John Jay, the enthusiasm to remove Governor Clinton was never translated into action, and Clinton served his term as governor. 
It is particularly inspiring what John Jay said when the controversy erupted. To his wife, he wrote these immortal words that I hope we in this republic would always remember. And this is my point. He said, quote, A few more years will put us all in the dust. And it will then be of more importance to me to have governed myself than to have governed the state of New York. I conclude with this. It is better to be right with God than in power with man. Let me step into safer territory now. Margaret Pierce Young was born in Aston Township, Delaware County, Pennsylvania. Her parents were Robert and Hannah Pierce. They were Quakers. Her mother, she said, was a well-educated, gifted writer and spiritually inclined. Her father was a prosperous farmer. They lived in various parts of Pennsylvania, but then in 1832, they moved to Brandywine. Their house was beautifully situated on a low hill, affording a fine view of a large part of their farm. It was green. It was pretty. It was about 45 miles from Philadelphia. Margaret said when she was just a little girl, she took a cold or she caught a cold on the ice and a fever and heart trouble followed her after that and she was ill for many months. And then she tells this most remarkable story. One evening, two men passing by our way stopped and knocked at our door and said, We are Latter-day Saints and have been directed to this house by the Spirit. Have you sickness here? Mother answered, Oh, yes, come in. And she brought them to my bedside. They took my hand, she said, and looked upon me for a moment, when one, turning to my mother, spoke as follows. If she will obey the gospel of Christ and put her trust in him, who is able to save, she will be healed from this very moment. End quote. And then Margaret says, declining to sit or refresh themselves with food, they pursued their way. They didn't know who they were. They took no rest, no food. They left immediately. And Margaret said, I was healed and the next morning was on my feet. We knew not who these servants of God were, from whence they came, nor did we ever after hear aught concerning them. Well, in the ensuing summer of 1839, two elders from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints came into the area, crying, repent, and be baptized. Their names were, and I hope they're related to some of you, Elijah Davis and Lorenzo Barnes. Margaret said they explained the gospel to us in fullness and power. Their words sank deep into our hearts, and the first baptisms were on the 29th of July, 1839, and on the 28th of October, 1839, the Brandywine, Pennsylvania branch was organized. And then she said weekly meetings were held at our house, which was commodious and freely open. People came from miles around to hear the principles of Mormonism expounded at the Pierce Farm. 
Then in January of 1840, word reached the Pierce family that Joseph Smith was going to visit their branch on his way from Pennsylvania, from Philadelphia. Margaret's father said, let's get our carriage and go to meet him. So they brought Joseph to their home. Margaret's mother served a splendid supper, and then the neighbors gathered to hear the prophet's discourse. Margaret said, I wish that I might describe my feelings at that meeting. Though they are fresh and green in my memory today, I cannot but fall short of expressing myself. So animated with loving kindness, so mild and gentle, yet big and powerful and majestic was the prophet, that to me he seemed more than a man. I thought, she said, almost an angel. We were all investigating, but none of my people had entered the waters of baptism. However, it was a great joy to us to entertain Joseph Smith and hear his wonderful words of wisdom. And then she adds, it was two o'clock in the morning when we permitted him to retire. I wanted to listen to him all night. When the prophet was allowed to retire and rest and had gone from the room, my mother said, I don't see how anyone can doubt his being a prophet of God. You can see it in his countenance, which is so full of intelligence. Yes, truly, Father replied, he is a prophet of God. The next day, her mother was baptized. They cut a hole in the ice, which was six inches thick, and baptized her mother and her little sister. But because of Margaret's delicate health, they waited a little bit longer till the weather warmed up for her. Now, it wasn't long after that that they sold all that they had and moved to Nauvoo. 22nd of September, 1841, they bid farewell to the wonderful land of Pennsylvania, and they set out for Nauvoo. As they came up the river on the steamboat and at the landing at Nauvoo, Margaret said, who should meet us but the prophet Joseph Smith and his wife, who took us home and entertained us most hospitably. Their family was always very friendly to all of us, seeming never to forget my father's hospitality to them in Pennsylvania. Okay, last story is again very close to the heart. Jesus often said, come unto me. That's a fair question. Why? What happens if I do come unto him? What happens if I do come? Follow me. Well, I've wondered that for a long time. What will it be like to come to him now and hereafter? I believe this story answers that question once and for all. It was a day unlike any other in recorded history when the Lord Jesus Christ appeared at Bountiful. Near the end of that day, he announced to them, Behold, my time is at hand. I perceive, he said, that ye are weak 
that you cannot understand all my words which I am commanded of the Father to speak unto you at this time. He then invited them to go home and ponder and pray and prepare themselves, and he would come back the next day. But now, he said, I go unto the Father. And then in the record, 3 Nephi 17, it is as if the master seems to pause and looks out over the multitude. And I love this. Their tears, their tear-filled faces were fixed upon him as if to say, please don't leave us. Why were they crying? One day, I was given to understand. Have you ever thought about who these people were? These are the people who had waited for him all their lives, all those years. Since they were children, they had been taught that Jesus would come to them. They had lived their lives waiting for him. They had endured persecution suffering, and in some cases, even death threats. And yet they had kept the faith, endured to the end, and now he was here. They had waited all their lives for him, and now he was about to leave? They just couldn't let him go with their hearts. And it moved him. Behold, he said, my bowels are filled with compassion towards you. Have you any that are sick among you? Bring them hither. Have you any that are afflicted in any manner? Bring them hither, and I will heal them. Now note earlier, I have to go. I have an appointment. I have to go see the lost ten tribes. And then he stops and says, Have you any that need help? Bring them to me. And with that invitation, that congregation arose as a body and carried their sick and afflicted to him, and one by one he healed them all. When he finished, all of them fell before him kissing his feet and bathing him with their tears. Their love for him knew no bounds. And then Jesus gathered their little children about him, knelt in their midst, and prayed for them. No one, the record said, can conceive of the joy which filled our souls at the time we heard him pray for us unto the Father. My dear friends, can it be that at that moment, Jesus prayed for each one of those people, one by one, individually, and by name? And then rising from prayer, can you imagine this as a parent? He took their little children and one by one blessed them and prayed unto the Father for them. That one day 
change the course of history. Now I end where I begin. Why should we come unto Christ? Because given enough time, he will heal all our wounds and give us gifts and joy beyond all things. What price is it worth to come into the presence of beings so filled with love that the full measure of it now to experience would well nigh consume us? It is worth any, all, and every sacrifice. I bear witness to you that Christ lives and that he and our Father love us perfectly, more than we love ourselves, and that we cannot comprehend the love, the gifts, the blessings, and the joy that await us if we will come unto Christ now before he comes to us and we're not ready. I witness to you further that this is his church, his gospel, and his power and authority is on the earth now to save all men. The keys and authority and doctrines of salvation are right here. Take full advantage. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you for listening. Many of the stories you heard today have been published and are archived at glenrossonstories.com. If you would like more information, you can communicate with us there. We will be back again with another podcast next week.